Welcome to Recess Now, 5-Minute Bid. I'm Ralph Seymour. Hey, we're doing some hyperkalemic stuff today. I think it comes up a lot. I think it's important. So let's get started. All right, the first thing I want you to know is what the EKG looks like. You guys probably already know this stuff, but I want to go through it just in case you don't, because I think it's really important. It's something, it's one of those emergencies that comes up more often than we'd like it to. So I think it's important to uh, kind of go through it um, step by step. So the first thing that's going to happen on the EKG is the uh, T waves are going to become tall and peaked, all right, and the sh- QT interval is going to become short, all right? So that's the first thing that's going to happen. I wish I could tell you a definite potassium level where that's going to happen, but it's not going to correlate well with the potassium levels. Most patients with potassium levels greater than seven are going to have EKG changes, but it could happen before that. It could happen after that. And it doesn't, it's not very sensitive. So I I really want you to understand that you can't really use an EKG to say, Hey, that potassium level is definitely going to be like greater than 6.5. That's not necessarily true. So the first thing that you have to look for though, is peaked T waves. The next thing is the progressive lengthening of the PR interval until it goes away. There's no more PR interval because there's no more P wave. The P wave drops. The QRS complex continues to widen, widen, widen until it kind of merges with the T wave and becomes this big, bizarre, wacky looking uh, wave. And that's called a sine wave. So that is going to be the natural progression of how things play themselves out in the setting of hyperkalemia. So what are you going to do? You got a patient that's dying, patient's hypotensive of patients usually bradycardic because bradyarrhythmias are usually the arrhythmias that you're going to see in the setting of hyperkalemia. So the first thing you're going to reach for is calcium, calcium chloride. Calcium chloride has three times the elemental calcium that um, calcium gluconate does, but calcium gluconate is easier on the tissues. So which one do I use? I usually use calcium chloride, guys. That's what I do. All right, I make sure that the IV is nice and patent, and I'll throw it right in the dialysis port if I have to. This is a life-saving maneuver, okay? And that's what you got to do. You got to do something that's going to stabilize that cardiac membrane because that's what calcium is going to do. Calcium chloride, three times the elemental calcium as calcium gluconate. Calcium gluconate, less calcium, can be given safer peripherally than calcium chloride, but it's usually hung over like 10 to 20 minutes and it takes time and it's not as effective, I don't think, and I don't like it that much. And I hate waiting from uh, waiting for it from pharmacy. It just, it, it irritates the shit out of me. If somebody's dying, give them calcium chloride, all right? And I'm not telling you that, you know, if you extravasate it and you fuck that up, then and I didn't tell you to do it that way, all right? You have to be careful, all right? That's, that's a big big deal is being careful and not screwing things up. Okay. But if somebody's dying, calcium chloride is definitely worth it. Get it done in a central line if you can. But, you know, usually these patients are dialysis patients. They have a uh, hemodialysis catheter readily available. That's what I recommend. And be careful not to extravasate the medicine. Don't let it extravasate. Very important because it can cause tissue necrosis. Calcium gluconate um, can cause a little bit of hypotension because of the gluconate salt that it's prepared. Um, and, and I, you know, again, I, I don't, I don't think that calcium gluconate comes up in my, on my radar too much, but you know, something to keep into mind is uh, the differences between the two compounds. So there you go. Um, the next thing that you're going to think about is insulin and dextrose. Now, 
Insulin and dextrose um, are an important part of the management, the acute management of hyperkalemia, because basically what insulin is going to do is it's going to bully potassium back into the cell and lower the serum potassium uh, levels that way. Now, dextrose is only given uh, to avoid the hypoglycemic uh, uh, effects that insulin will cause. Okay, so if the glucose level is greater than 250, then don't give any dextrose with it. If the glucose level is less than 250, then you can give an amp of dextrose with the insulin. And basically what it's doing is bullying its way, um, you know, bullying that potassium back in the cell by uh, increasing the activity of the sodium potassium pump, blah, 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 blah. That's what it does. It's important. It ain't going to work right away because as you know, insulin uh, doesn't work right away. It, it takes about 15 to 20 minutes to even start working. And then it's going to have a peak effect depending on what kind of insulin you're using. Usually you're going to use regular insulin. You can use rapid acting insulin, but important to understand probably last, um, you know, anywhere around four hours. Um, so it's not the greatest treatment that we have, but it's definitely one that we should think about. The next thing is sodium bicarbonate. Look, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about sodium bicarbonate for the treatment of hyperkalemia because here's why. It doesn't work well. It just doesn't work well. When you push big hypertonic loads of sodium bicarb, I think that oftentimes is more deleterious than anything else, okay? So if you're going to use sodium bicarb, I would use it in the setting of a patient that is acidotic with a pH that's lower, okay? Because inherently, sodium bicarbonate, by raising the pH, is actually going to lower the potassium because that's how everything works, okay? But it doesn't do it that well, and it's not that great of a medication. If you're going to use sodium bicarbonate, I recommend using it in the form of a drip. That's a better way to do it, Um but the, the data says, you know, if a patient's not acidotic, why are we using it at all? And I kind of agree and I kind of stay away from it. Most of the nephrologists are doing the same thing. Well, this is going to wrap up our first uh, section on hyperkalemia. I'm going to do a couple of these. It's not going to be that long. There's not going to be like five of them. But uh, I think it's an important topic. So we'll see you next time for part two, hyperk.